Let's pray. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we give you praise. We thank you, Lord, for your love, for your hand upon our lives. Father, we thank you for gathering us together once again to learn at your feet, to fellowship at your feet. Father, we say receive our thanks in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that as we go into your word, that you teach us by yourself in Jesus' name. Father, everything that is said here will be to your glory, will be to the praise of your holy name. Thank you because you are going to show us something new today in Jesus' name. Thank you because of your hand upon our lives. Thank you because we'll be blessed. Thank you because we'll be refreshed. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Uh, today we're, we're stepping into part 10 of the Romans series. We've been looking at the book of Romans for four months now. This is the fifth month that we've been studying the book of Romans. And God has been leading us and teaching us by himself some vital things about um, faith and our belief in him and our position in Christ. We started from chapter 1 and we've been doing a verse by verse study, just looking at every single book from chapter 1 and listening to what God has for us. Last two weeks in the ninth part of this series, we looked at the entirety of um, chapter 4, which is really rare for us in this series because usually we'll spend time on, you know, a verse or a couple of verses or We'll spend time on like half a chapter or a quarter of a chapter and we'll really dig deep into that. Then we move on. But last two weeks, we really spent time on Romans chapter 4 because Romans chapter 4 had a central theme. And the central theme of Romans chapter 4 was Abraham being our father. And we looked at how Abraham is the progenitor of faith. And we looked at how or the ways by which we who are not physically Israelites or from the nation of Israel, we who cannot call ourselves Jews by birth, how God in his infinite wisdom and mercy brought us into his covenant with him through the actions of Abraham, which was fulfilled later by Jesus on the cross, who is called Abraham's seed. And that was the entirety of chapter 4, in summary. Today, we're jumping into chapter 5 of Romans. And we're back to our short verse-by-verse study once again, because chapter 5 has a lot that he has to say to us. So today, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, from verse 1 to verse 5. And we're going to spend most of today in these five verses. I read. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amen. So the central theme of everything we are going to be discussing today is the relationship between faith, hope, and love. The three of them are connected. They are not particularly, they are three distinct things, but they are connected. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse, I mean 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, yes. Um, Paul was speaking and he said, now these three exist, or these three are, I'm paraphrasing, and he said, there's faith, there's hope, and there's love. And he said, but the greatest of this is love. On Sunday, we spent some time talking about hope and the importance of hope. And just to recap, because that would be necessary in today's teaching as well, we talked about what hope means for a believer. And we said that hope for a believer is not like the earthly or the secular definition of hope where there is no basis. When we use hope in the English language, we're basically talking about what we desire, but there's not necessarily something concrete that is backing up that desire. So you can say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope it rains tomorrow. I hope it's sunny tomorrow. I hope when I'm going to walk tomorrow, there's no traffic. There's no assurance. There's no proof that you have that either outcome will take place. You just have a preferable option. You have something that you would rather want, but it's not resting on anything. But we said that when we talk about hope within the context of the faith, we're talking about the assurance that we have through our relationship with Jesus and through his work on the cross that one day we will be with Jesus forever, that we will leave this earth and we would reign and rule with Jesus and we will see him as he is and we will be like him. And we looked at First John uh, chapter 3 from verse 1 to 3. That was Sunday. But today we're looking at something different. The relationship between faith, hope, and love. So the first thing we have in our manual and the first thing that we have to realize is this. We have access to God through Jesus Christ by faith. You know, in some circles, there is emphasis that might be placed on the importance of love. And sometimes when some of us might go out to evangelize, we might talk to an unbeliever about love, about, yes, the love of God, but sometimes there might be a tendency to want to speak about, you know, how we also have a responsibility to love God. 
back in return. But scripturally, God does not demand love from unbelievers. Because unbelievers do not have the capacity to love God the way God should be loved. Love is a requirement for people who are already saved. Nobody accesses God or accesses the kingdom of God by love. The only thing that gives us access to the kingdom of God is faith. So when someone is an unbeliever, God does not demand love from the person because the love of God is not in that person. That person cannot love God in the state that they are in because they do not have God's nature. The people who God demands love from, the people who God requires love from, is us, those who are saved, because we're the only ones that have the capacity to love him. So love is not a requirement for the unsaved. The only requirement, the primary requirement for those who do not know Jesus is faith. Is faith. Faith opens the door. Faith is the access. So if you're speaking to someone, in, whether in your family or in your office, or in your circle that does not know Jesus, yes, you can teach the person that about the love that God has for them, but there is no point mentioning any obligation or any need for them to love God back because they are incapable of doing so. Because they don't know him yet. So the starting point is faith. Faith is where the race begins. Faith is where the journey starts. And I have a supporting scripture that I have written in the, in the manual. First John chapter 4 verse 10. And it's a very popular verse but i'll just read it quickly and it says here it says that in this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the appropriation for our sins what john is saying here is that the beginning of the journey did not start with our love for god the person who loved first was God. He loved us and he sent his son to be the appropriation, the sacrifice, the exchange for our sins. And to be partakers of that exchange, you don't need to love Jesus. You just need to believe him. Believe in what he has done. Love is not a requirement for someone who is unsaved. Because they cannot do it. They can't. We've talked a lot about the nature of man and how both death and life are natures. So someone who does not have the nature of God inside him or her is incapable of loving God because they don't know him. However, the starting point is faith. That's the first point. The second point is this. Faith is tested either by trials or tribulations to produce hope. 
So at the end of service on Sunday, we prayed a prayer point, and one of the things that I asked us to pray here was that this hope that we thought about so beautifully on Sunday will be produced in our lives. This prayer point that you prayed on Sunday, what you were indirectly praying for was trials and tribulations because hope is produced when there are trials and tribulations. Trials, tribulations, tests, those are the raw materials that are necessary for hope to be produced in the life of a believer. And we have that written here in Romans that we just read. And we can just read it again as a reminder. Verse 1 starts with the fact that we have been justified by faith. And we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into grace. And we just talked about faith being the access. Of verse 3 it says what? And not only that, but we glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. So, the step-by-step progression is tribulations will produce perseverance, perseverance will produce character, character would produce hope. Sometimes... I think people make the mistake of assuming that God has called us into an easier life. God has called us into a better life. Better and easier are not the same thing. So the Christian walk, the relationship with God is far better than anything that you ever had before you met Jesus. Jesus is the best option. Jesus is the only way to the Father. We have been translated from death into life. We have been translated from darkness into light. So yes, we have been called into a better life. There is no question that this life is better than anything that you had before you met Jesus. But better and easier are not the same thing. And sometimes there's a tendency for us to confuse better with easier. But the reality is, and maybe this this is something that should be mentioned more or taught more on pulpits, some things become naturally more difficult in your life because you chose Jesus. It will happen. Because then you have to be conscious of your circle. Then you have to be conscious of your actions. Because God will start to work on you and the things that you do, the things that you say, the places that you go, the people that you interact with, the things that you are allowed to do. Because you're a different person now. Your nature has changed. And you're growing in Him. It gets better. But it doesn't always physically gets easier. But any trial that we go through for the sake of our faith, and this happens almost immediately, as your journey in faith begins, your faith has to be tested 
and it has to be tested so that it can produce hope in you. And we saw the progression. This particular point is what will make it so, make us understand a bit better why the disciples of Jesus, the people we read about in the epistles, were so excited by trials. Here, Paul uses the word glory in tribulations. He says glory. Can we turn our Bibles to James chapter 1? The very first chapter of James. James chapter 1. Verse 2-4, to you see what James says here. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Know that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let the patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing so james expresses it differently but he still talks about joy he says count it as joy when you go through it because it's supposed to produce something in you so for james he says patience for paul he says perseverance or endurance which still communicates the same sentiment because that's what a trial will produce in you to produce the ability to wait, to depend on God. And he says what? That let that patience have its perfect work. Because when that patience have its per- has its perfect work, you'll be perfect. Perfect here means mature. You'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Trials are beautiful things for believers. We should welcome them with open arms. And I have written down here some other characteristics of trials. But I think I first have to clarify that trials and temptations are not the same thing. Temptation is not trial. A trial or a tribulation is something that comes to test your faith. It's a test of your faith. A temptation is something that comes to basically tempt you to sin, to want to lead you to offend God or to do something that would be against what God has said. There are two different things. God does not tempt us, but he tries us. So what God did with Abraham was not a temptation, it was a trial. So he promised Abraham his son, he called him when he was, started walking with him, 75, 76, 77, went like that till he became 100. When he was 100, after 25 years, fulfilled the promise, actually gave him Isaac. Then he didn't ask for Isaac when Isaac was 1, he didn't ask for Isaac when Isaac was 2. 
He waited for Abraham to develop a bond with his son. The boy grew up. And when the boy grew up and matured, God now said, go and sacrifice him to me. You know, it's a lot easier to do if he, if he, if they just give birth to Isaac and God says, okay, give me Isaac. Because yes, you love the son, but you've not spent time with him. The fact that Isaac was old enough to walk that mountain with his father and the fact that they knew where they were going means that that's a journey they've probably taken a lot of times. The fact that Isaac could say, well, the wood is here. Where is the sacrifice? means that Isaac knew this routine. It means that Isaac had grown up enough to have reasoning. So it means at that point, Isaac already had personality. Abraham could, was already fond of his son. It's not two-year-old or three-year-old. So God waited till they had formed a bond. Then he says, give me that boy. That's not temptation. That's a trial of faith. So I read other characteristics of trials. The first thing that I have here is they are key components for God's operation here on earth. It's simply one of the ways that God deals with his children. You can't escape it if you're a child of God. That your faith will not be tried. No. It has to be. Because if it isn't, hope will not be produced in you. You have to go through some stuff. The scripture I have there is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, I won't open it, I'll just quote it. It says, For all things work together for good, for they that love God, and they that are called according to his purpose. Paul would not have had to quote this scripture if he was talking about pleasant things. When he says, For all things work together for good, he was talking about unpleasant things. Having the assurance that in the end it will work together for your good because you are love God and you are called according to his purpose. God simply works in this world. And one of the ways that he works is through trials. Second is that they are tools that God uses to prove himself. And God proves himself through trials. The scripture we have written down there is Judges 7.2. Judges 7-2 is the story of Gideon. When Gideon had gathered the initial number of people that he was supposed to use to go and fight. And God said, no, they are too much. This is when God was about to reduce them from that number to 300. But the interesting thing about what God said, the reason why God asked him to reduce them to 300, what God said, and you can go and check it out, is he said, lest they think that it was through their hands that they saved themselves. So what God was saying was, okay, if you go with this number, you people are going to think that it's by your power that you were able to deliver yourself. So he says, reduce them. He got them to a number that it was obviously impossible for them to win that battle without him. So God does it to prove himself 
So when they came to tell Jesus that Lazarus was sick, the Bible just says Jesus tarried where he was. We're not told what he was doing. Perhaps he was resting. Perhaps he was teaching and healing. We're not told what he was doing. What we know for sure is that when Jesus took that journey, by the time he got to Lazarus, Lazarus had died four days. Jesus knew. So when he got there and he saw everybody, even Mary and Martha, who were close to him, and when Jesus was telling them that he would rise again, they said, we know that he would rise again in the resurrection. Jesus was close enough to them to have taught them already at that time about the resurrection. Sometimes we might think to ourselves that Jesus only shared these things with his disciples or the twelve. No. Yes, we have the account of the places where he told them about these things. But from the statements that these sisters made, you would know that from Jesus' fellowship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he had already taught them what was coming, what was going to happen at the end. That one day we would all reign with him. So when Jesus said he would rise again, their thinking went to, okay, at the resurrection, he would rise again. They believed in him. Yes, they did. But in their own reality, in their minds at that time, they had completely lost hope in Lazarus rising up again on earth. And what did Jesus do? He came to restore that hope. And yes, they knew he had power. But for some reason, it hadn't dawned on them that this one, he can do it too. That there's nothing impossible for him to do. Trials prepare us for service. And they are a tool for sanctification. That's what maturity is. We read that in James chapter 1 from verse 2 to 4. Because hope is the key to purity. And they teach us to depend on God. Let's just open the first Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians one twenty eight. It says twenty eight to the end. It says, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So he says Jesus uses the weaker things of this world, that God deliberately uses the things that are discarded in this world. And he uses them so that we will depend on him. God is never going to use us or do anything with us within the reality of what we call our own strength. 
He doesn't do that. Every single time we might talk about brokenness, what brokenness actually is, is God bringing us to a point where we're totally and completely reliant on him. That's how he breaks us. And one of the ways that we are broken is through trials. So trials are beautiful things. And we should welcome them as believers. Shouldn't shy away from them. Because God always gives us the strength to pull through and go through them. They are not temptations. They are simply things that we encounter in our Christian walk to build up our hope. Because when your faith is tested and you overcome, you become stronger. You become stronger. Not in yourself or your own strength, but in the fact that you're learning to depend on God more. So faith is tested by trials and tribulations to produce hope. So, so if we start from the beginning, what we are saying is that we have access to God through Jesus Christ by faith. That faith is tested by trials and tribulations to produce hope. And the third thing we have written here is that hope is sustained through love. Hope is sustained by love. So if we go back to Romans, Romans 5. Romans 5. The last verse is 5. It says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Every word of scripture is important in English language. In the way it's written, the context in which it is written, it says hope does not disappoint. But it goes further to tell you the reason why hope does not disappoint. The reason that hope does not disappoint is because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. So hope cannot survive on its own. That hope is sustained. It is given power by the love of God that has been shared abroad in our hearts. This passage shows and teaches us something that is very important. And you might find it ridiculous to say or to hear But it's true. Every believer loves God. And you're like, Billy, what do you mean? Because like, a lot of times we probably have prayed prayers. Like, Lord, help me to love you more. That prayer has its place. And we'll get there. But every believer loves God. Every believer loves God because the scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts.
before we move on, I want to show something interesting. So, the Bible is interesting because we talk about Greek and we talk about the Greek language a lot and we talk about English and we talk about interpretations. The word heart here in this verse is a word in Greek called cardia. K-A-R-D-I-A. That's the root word. That's where it's gotten from. It's the root word that also creates English words like cardiologist. So the doctor that is in charge of treating heart conditions is called a cardiologist or cardiology. So the study of the heart is cardiology in medicine. So the root word in Greek is cardia. But that word cardia is not the same. In some other places in the Bible, when the word heart is used, you might see the description of mind, the Greek word for mind. Sometimes you would see the Greek word for soul, and we'll get there. But cardia, what cardia means, essentially, is the spirit of man. So the explanation for cardia, that word, What's being communicated is the very essence and the root of what makes a human being who he is. And we know by scripture that that is our spirit. And it follows through with scripture because what that means, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5 verse 5 is that the Holy Spirit sheds the love of God abroad in our spirits. So immediately we become saved. Every believer who has accepted Jesus automatically loves God because the love of God exists in that believer's spirit. But we do not interact with this physical world with our spirit alone. We don't interact with this world with our spirit alone. And that takes us to the final part of this teaching. Let's just open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12 from verse 28 to 30. Mark 12, 28 to 30. Bible says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Amen. If you check the Greek for the statement that Jesus made here, Jesus was quoting the book of Deuteronomy. He was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 from verse 45. 
But if you check the Greek of this quotation that Jesus made here, you would find that when Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, that heart there is also cardia. Then soul in the Greek is psyche. And that's where you get psychologist or psychiatrist from. But there are places within the New Testament where you will see that heart and mind or heart and soul are interchangeable. Because sometimes heart is mentioned and if you check what the original Greek is, you would find that it's psychia that is there. And that's where the interpretation of the Bible becomes interesting. Because, like I've said before, English is kind of a deficient language. So, cardia is used in Romans 5.5. Cardia is also used here in Mark chapter 12 from verse 28. This is teaching us something extremely vital. We started this teaching by saying that the unbeliever cannot love God. Right? And the reason why the unbeliever cannot love God is because the root of the love that God demands from humanity starts from man's spirit, the very essence of man, which is the word used as cardia here. And the person responsible for bringing that love into man is the Holy Spirit. And the order is very, very specific. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your first heart. That's the first place. That's the roots. That's where it starts from. It starts from the spirit of man. It starts from where the Holy Spirit resides. It starts from where our nature has been changed and our spirits have been made to come alive. Because that's where the Spirit of God is. It starts from your heart. That is you. The real you. But it's not enough. So all the prayers that we pray about love apply to the rest. And I call those things the outworkings of love. Is the outworking of the love that you already have. So that the devil will not deceive you and make you feel like, oh, you don't love God. That's not the problem. The problem is that work, that love is not being, has not been worked out in you in some areas of your life. And that's where the rest come in. So he says, you shall love him with your heart. Then he says, all oh, your soul. That's psyche. The soul is the seat of desire and longing. It's, it's where dreams are. It's where your desires, every single thing that you want, every single thing that you want to be, every single thing that makes you who you are on this earth, the things that you want to achieve, the dreams that you have, the things that you want to attain, ambition is in the soul. Want is in the soul. Need is in the soul. Yearning is in the soul. And what God is saying is that we have to love God with all our soul. 
Meaning that God should become our purpose. God should become our end result. God should become our final destination as to what we want to become. He should be like God told Abraham in the book of Genesis. God told Abraham something in Genesis 15, I think verse 1. And he said to Abraham, I am your reward. God should be our reward. Not even the things that he does for us. He himself should be our reward. He should be our inheritance. So sometimes the problem that we have is that our souls are yearning for the benefits and the things that God can give us. And he says he wants to give us. But our souls are not yearning for God himself. And that's what it means to love the Lord with all our soul. But when we summarize every single thing that is within us, and some people would call this heart, but the reason why I'm calling it soul is because of the context of the word heart used in scripture. But in English language, some people will say, yeah, what is your heart's desire, right? That heart desire, if it was to be interpreted in Greek, would not be cardia, to be psyche. That the summary of our desires, our longings, our wants, our goals, our dreams should be God. Not just his benefits, but he himself. Then after that, he says what? We should love the Lord with our what? With our minds. So here it's not just enough to yearn for him. It's to think about him. It's to want to know him. It's what occupies our reasoning. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about God is purely intellectual. It's purely in your head. You can read so many books. You can finish the books. I love reading. I encourage reading. I hound people to read spiritual books. I almost bully them. But that's not the point. If it ends in the head, that's not knowing God. You're knowing about Him. You can know about God and not know Him. Knowing God is experiential knowledge. Knowing God is reading about things. Even if you're getting that knowledge from somewhere, whether it's a scripture, or it's a message, or it's a podcast, or it's a video, or it's a book written by someone, that the details, the things that are written in that book are things that you have either experienced in your life or you want to experience, you yearn to experience, you want to know what it means to be like this. That when you're reading about healing or deliverance or faith, that there's a yearning for experiential knowledge in you, that you want to know God in a specific area, That's what it means to love God with our minds. That God occupies our thoughts more than anything else. All these things, like I said, they are outworkings of love. 
they are possible. They are not impossible. And that's what it means to love God with our minds. That our thinking, our reasoning should be God. And the last thing he says is what? Love him with all our what? All our strength. All your strength. That has to do with our bodies. What we spend our energy and our time on. So if you notice, every single aspect of this love covers every single thing that makes a human being what he is. Spirit, soul, and body. So loving God with all our strength is everything that makes us who we are in terms of our physical body on this earth. What we spend our time and our energy on. The places that we go, where we walk, what we do. And this is where Romans 12 makes sense when Paul starts to talk about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. That we should love God with all our strength. That we should spend our time doing the things that He wants. We should spend our time dedicating ourselves to what He wants for His kingdom and for our lives. It doesn't end in the soul. It doesn't end in the mind. It translates to the body. And of course, reading all these things, the first thing you have to admit is that realistically speaking, even thinking about it now, these things seem like they are impossible standards. And you see, that's where we are coming from. The first thing I said, even while talking about faith, is that God does not demand love from an unbeliever. Because an unbeliever cannot do it. It's interesting to note that Jesus repeated a scripture that was given in the Old Testament. Because Jesus essentially repeated something that was said in Deuteronomy, which was the time of Moses. But throughout history, were the children of Israel able to fulfill this? No. They were not able to love God with all their soul. Every single time they went through this vicious cycle, they knew the law, yes. They had it, yes. And that's what we've been discussing throughout the beginning of Romans. How man essentially was doomed. Because yes, the Jews knew the law, yes, they had it, but they could not keep it. It was impossible for them to love God with all that was in them. There was always something that they would have held back. And the book of Judges, the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, as one king comes, another king goes, man was lost. But this kind of love is now possible because the root of it has been done by the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of God, according to verse 5, has come. And he has shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. He has shed the love of God abroad in our spirits. So everybody who is in God's family loves God. They just need to work it out. 
and there's a consciousness we have to have that in every single thing that we do and this should be the direction of our prayers when we're praying about love don't let the devil make you feel like the love of god is not inside you even when you make a mistake even when you don't meet a standard even when you fall you love god but you have to mature your soul your mind your body your strength you have to work it out and it is when you do when you are actively on this path that your hope will not fail because it's that love that will fuel that hope the love that emanates from your spirit but permeates your soul and translates to your body in the things that you dedicate your life to that love will keep your hope alive the reason why it's important for us to teach about these things is because the church and i mean the church has the body of christ we're moving back to the original pattern And this is a long teaching, but we're in the days of the latter rain. There's the early rain and there's the latter rain in Israel. And that's an entirely different teaching that will take more than today. But essentially what you need to know is that symbolically, when you look at typology in the scripture, the time of the early rain was the time when the Holy Spirit first came upon the believers in Antioch, those first hundred years of the church, and the church prophetically now is stepping into already in the time of the later reign, where the Spirit of God is going to be moving again the way he moved before, in a greater dimension, where church will go beyond, where church will go beyond the simple social gatherings that exist in some places today, where we would experience the power of God palpable and real for true change in the world but the physical latter rain that comes in israel after the latter rain comes a bountiful harvest and that means that the harvest is also on its way it's here what that means is that before Christ comes again, there will be a massive harvest of souls. Right now, it seems like Christianity is in a weird place. It's not going to be like this forever. It's already happening in some nations and it's going to spread around the world. Where there will be a massive harvest of souls. Because after the latter rain comes the harvest. So now God is pouring down his spirit and he has been doing this for years. But as time continues to pass, he's pouring down his spirit on his church to equip them for that harvest. For as many people who will be partakers, when Jesus was saying that the field is white, but the laborers are few, the laborers for this harvest would be few no matter what. But for as many that would make themselves available, 
to be a part of this harvest that will usher in the return of Jesus. And that's the time that we're in now. And if that's the time that we're in now, what that means is that the things that they faced during the times of the early reign most likely are going to repeat themselves, maybe in a different dimension, but they'll repeat themselves in this time as well. And when we're reading through these scriptures, and we're reading about faith and hope and love, the thing that sustained these believers, what made them so happy and joyful to be able to go through some of the tests that they went through, what, made, what gave them the strength to be able to survive some of these things? When Paul started to list out the things that he has suffered in Galatians, you're looking like, how will a human being not quit? When you start saying things like, oh, I was shipwrecked so so, and so many times, I was beaten this amount of times, I was stoned this amount of times, all these things happened to me systematically. And yet I still stood up and said, I'm going to go and preach this gospel. How and why? It wasn't natural. It was born from an understanding that they had. It was born from this supernatural love that they had for God in their spirits that they had worked out, which was able to fill their hope. And that's why they were able to write these words of comfort and say, encourage yourselves. Comfort yourself knowing that this place is not the end. No matter what happens here, it doesn't matter. Their eyes were totally and completely fixed on Jesus. So their faith never failed. Because we have access through faith. Our faith is tried to produce hope. And our hope is sustained by the love of God in our hearts. And that's what Romans 5, 1-5 is teaching us today.